0: Hello everybody and welcome to the inaugural episode of Telescope Talk, the Professional Version. My name is Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.Space and this is the hangout where we meet with professional astronomers from around the world to discuss the latest discoveries, equipment and observatories from the perspective of doing things on the ground. Uh, This hangout will highlight all of the amazing stuff being done from ground-based observatories and will examine not just the science that's being accomplished, but we'll dive deep into the equipment being used, the observatories being built, and we'll also look at what it's like to work at a ground-based observatory. Now, Right now, these Hangouts aren't sponsored by anybody, but if you're watching and you think you might want to put your name on these growing and extremely interesting Hangouts, feel free to reach out because now is your chance. We can use all the help we can get here at Deep Astronomy. The idea is for alternating Tuesdays, uh, we will have a pro version of these hangouts, that's this one, and then an amateur version for amateur astronomy for the hobby that's designed to let you know what's going on in the hobby of amateur astronomy. So stay with us and hopefully you'll check them out. If you like them, I'd appreciate it if you give us a thumbs up or maybe share these with other people who you think might interest you might find interesting that they would be interested in. <laughs> and I also wanna mention that I am taking the audio of these Hangouts and I'm posting them as a podcast on anchor.fm slash Deep Astronomy, so you can listen to them in your car and it is syndicated everywhere, podcasts are syndicated. So there's another way to listen. Now today's hangout features the Square Kilometer Array, an international effort to build the world's largest radio telescope, which will eventually cover 1 square kilometer, hence the name, which is a million square meters of, co- of collecting area. That's a pretty big telescope. The scale of the SKA, as it's called for short, represents a huge leap forward in both engineering and research and develop- research and development towards building and delivering a unique instrument. With the detailed design and preparation, which is now well underway. Now, as one of the largest scientific endeavors in history, the SKA will bring together a wealth of the world's finest science scientists, engineers, and policymakers to bring the project to fruition. The SKA will eventually use thousands of dishes and up to a million low frequency antennas, and we'll talk about what those are in a minute, that will enable astronomers to monitor the sky in unprecedented detail and survey the entire sky much faster than any system currently in existence. Right now, those antennae are being built in South Africa and Western Australia. My guests today are Dr. Jeff Wagg. He's an experienced astronomer that has worked with radio interferometry data from some amazing places like the VLA, the Very Large Array in New Mexico, OMA in Chile, and he's now a project scientist, one of four, I'm told, at the SKA. Also joining me is Daniel Hayden, a systems engineer on, uh, uh, well, actually, he calls himself. A uh, yeah systems engineer uh, on the project as a whole, but particularly for the low frequency array that's being built in West Australia. So welcome guys, and let me pull everybody up. Let me put my little badge there, and there we go. Down in the lower left, of our I've got our Brady bunch here, but let me also introduce my co-host uh, Christian Ready from he is from um uh, uh I'm drawing a blank um. <laughs> Launchpad astronomy gosh i'm sorry uh, hi chris it's good to see you again hey tony good to see you again I how you that doing? Down on my little thing so how are you doing it's been it's been we we, we did it at our inaugural our inaugural i guess this is yeah kind of like our soft
1: launch uh preview thing you know and we yeah. did that back uh we did that last month and uh we're back and as tony said we're gonna be i'll be joining uh i'll be joining you every two weeks to talk about professional observatories such as Square kilometer, a- a what? <laughs> Square kilometer array. I say ska, right? Yeah, <laughs> so, is, is ska. Okay, because I keep, I keep, I keep, you know, hearing like the the old ska band madness in my head. You know, never. <laughs> one step beyond. I just want to do it. Anyway. Great to see you guys. Yeah. Thanks guys. Great to be here. Great to be here.
0: Okay, good. So yeah, I just want to point out this is, uh, so in the lower, we have a little Brady bunch going here with our, with our (laughs) hangout. So in the, in the lower left is, uh, is Dr. uh, Dr. Wagon in the upper right, um, upper, upper left is Daniel. So welcome guys. All right. Who, I gave a brief introduction to what S the uh, square chronometer Ray is, but I wonder um, Jeff, maybe you could give us a super high resolution picture (laughs) from the 60,000 feet, up of what's going on with this with the square kilometer array and what you hope to do with it
2: absolutely yeah thanks Tony um so let me just start by re- reiterating what you said earlier um we are building uh what will be the largest radio telescope uh, ever built um it will consist of in fact two separate telescopes as you mentioned earlier one in western australia this is our low frequency uh array of dipole antennas we call this sk1 low and then in the career of south africa Uh, we'll be building out uh, something on the order of 133 50-metre diameter dishes uh, to combine with the existing meerkat instrument. We'll come back to that a little bit later uh, to form the mid to high frequency array SK1 mid, uh, which uh, combined will really give us uh, broad uh, frequency coverage uh, for our ability to study phenomena such as pulsars, uh, gas in galaxies through their H1 line, uh, transient phenomena, such as well f- pulsars, as well as what we call fast radio bursts. And at lower frequencies, uh, we'll have the ability to actually study uh, effectively what is uh, what you could view as the formation of structure uh, in the early universe through the redshifted 21 uh, centimeter line of atomic hydrogen. So a lot of exciting stuff. And it's been uh, one of the most rewarding aspects of the project has been um, the collaboration uh, that has existed uh, in order to put this thing together we've got now 12 member countries of the SK organization uh, we have the three host countries the UK uh, South Africa and Australia and most recently we've been joined by our colleagues in France and Spain so we're really excited about all that and uh, we're actually in the process of finishing uh, the design work of these two telescopes uh, with the expectation that construction should begin in early 2020 so it's been a, bit, a busy time uh, but we have some exciting things to look forward to
0: so you're expecting to be done, uh, in the, what'd you say around 20, early 2020.
2: So we'll start construction in early 2020 and then construction should last roughly five or six years. So we'll begin full science operations around 20, toward the end of 2026.
1: When you say that you, you're going to begin construction in 2020, uh, you're not talking about of uh, the entire project you're talking about which, which specific part of it so both telescopes
2: right now <clears throat> uh, what exists on the two sites so there are existing radio telescopes on the two sites mm-hmm. uh in the case of crew we ha- uh the crew in south africa we have meerkat which is an array of um 64 13.5 meter diameter uh radio dishes okay uh, we also have a, a low frequency telescope called hira in operation on the site there on the western australia side we have uh, ascap which is an array of dishes equipped with what are called uh, phased array feed so these wide field of view Mm-hmm. Cameras for radio frequencies, uh, as well as the MWA, uh, which is a a low frequency Pathfinder precursor uh, from what will be SK1 Low in Western Australia. Okay. And just uh, to reiterate, the frequency range for SK1 Low will cover fifty megahertz up to three hundred fifty megahertz. Uh, in the case of SK1 Mids, uh, we'll observe between three hundred fifty megahertz up to at least uh, fifteen gigahertz, possibly higher frequencies.
1: Okay, great. Thanks for thanks for clarifying. Yeah. So you have yep. a wider range. You have a Yeah, basically, you know, as you've already pointed out, it's several telescopes, but really it's several different types of radio telescopes.
2: Each sensitive
1: to different bands? We have two different
2: types of radio telescopes. But uh, maybe I should, um, for those who are are interested, the way the interferometer will work is that all these antennas or dishes, um, basically the signals combined in what's called a correlator in order to make a higher resolution, uh, better fidelity image, uh, Than one would make uh, using one any one of these dishes by themselves. It's the right. same way that very large array uh, works, um, a, just outside of Socorro, New Mexico.
0: Now the uh, uh, you've worked on Alma too, which is the Atacama Large Millimeter Submillimeter Array. Did I get that right?
2: Yep, okay. that's correct. Yes,
0: yeah. <laughs> I love me some acronyms. Uh, okay, so the uh, how Alma. Is one of the most, I've been told, oversubscribed telescopes on the planet right now because it is one of the highest resolution radio telescopes we've ever had in the history of radio telescoping. How will the square kilometer array compare to that or is it not fair to compare with that and what about the wavelength range comparisons? So
2: um, what sets ALMA apart from the, the SK, just to begin with, is it, it works at a higher frequency. And this is part of the reason that ALMA needed to be built at a 5,000-meter elevation site. Um, this is one of the driest sites in the world. So it's been built basically above most of the water vapor in the atmosphere. And unfortunately, at these wavelengths, water vapor is, uh, effectively acts as, a, as an attenuator for the signal we're trying to observe from space. Um, and so for that reason, ALMA's been built at this high elevation. Uh, it's observing at frequencies almost up to the terahertz uh, regime. And now, in the case of the SK, we'll observe effectively from the upper end uh, of, or sorry, the lower end of where ALMA uh, cuts off. ALMA observes down to something like thirty-five gigahertz now, and the SK will start uh, observing at fifteen gigahertz and below. But we're hoping, uh, if the dishes are good enough in terms of their, in terms of their, their final uh, design, their final construction. We might be able to observe the higher frequencies, but that's still an open question.
0: Okay, I want to get to the kinds of science that you can uh, do with um, with uh, the SKA, and I wonder if now would be a good time for me to show this uh, this uh, fact sheet for science uh, or or not. What do you think? Great, absolutely. Yep. All right, let me let me see if I can get that put together. Uh, there's that. Okay, what I have up is the uh, the PDF file you sent me uh, uh, called uh, Fact Sheet Science. Um, yep. Now, on it, you have here some case studies where you're going to be looking at... Well, first of all, you've got a book. It's called the SKA Science Book. What's that? Absolutely. You got two so volumes actually, of it.
2: So this is very exciting. Unfortunately, I don't have a copy of this here with me right now. <laughs> but a few years ago, we, we put... Um, Uh, we put a task to the to the astronomers in the community and that was to update uh the science case for the sk and as you can see here 1300 authors uh got together to put together this lofty two volume set uh when i say lofty the entire two volume set weighs in at nine kilos and so well at
0: two thousand pages yeah
2: so so it weighs in at nine kilos and for this reason uh most of us um don't actually have copies of our own we, we, we tend to download the copies for free off the internet and if you like uh, I can provide your 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 viewers uh, with a link uh, to the URL that has all of these chapters for free and what it does is basically Absolutely. covers all of the science uh, that we we would hope to do uh, with the first phase of the SK as well as the second phase of the SK now I don't think we'll talk about that much here today but uh, the broader vision of the square kilometer array uh, in many people's minds Uh, is to build out uh, the SK to an even larger collecting area uh, sometime in the future. But that will be uh, many years uh, down the road. As I said earlier, we're not expecting to finish completion of the first phase and begin operations until roughly 2026, um, later 2026.
0: Okay, so uh, I need to remind everybody I didn't because I didn't say this at the top of the hangout. Let me just say it now. I put a link in the description box to a Google Drive folder, and it has all of the visuals that we're using in this hangout. So you're free to download them. I've gotten permission from the uh, guests here that these are freely available. There are there's a trailer for the Square Kilometer Array, which I'm not going to show because it's five minutes long. And then there's a couple of others that explain that explain the uh the square kilometer array as well there's also this these pdf files that i'm, I'm showing you now as well as everything and so if you're having trouble reading it because of the streaming or whatever then definitely uh feel free to download the, the the link is in the description box and that's also for you guys listening on the podcast and you want to follow along with the visuals so this helps you uh get uh what we're talking about even though you're listening Okay. So, uh, so, all right, back to this. So we've got, you've got a couple of case studies here. One of them is that you're really, are you really going to look at gravitational waves with this thing?
2: So what we would like to do, um, I think many of your users, many of your um, listeners will be familiar with the LIGO results um, that came out last year now. Mm -hmm. Uh, Very exciting, a direct detection of gravitational waves. Um,
0: Ground-based, by the way.
2: Ground-based. What LIGO had detected uh, were the higher frequency waves. What we would like to do is demonstrate the existence of what are called nanohertz gravitational waves. And so this has been predicted to be due to the mergers of supermassive black holes uh, throughout the history of the universe. Um, But because these are very long gravitational waves, uh, one of the only ways, if not the only way, actually detect them is to time uh, what are called pulsars. And I think, uh, again, many of your listeners will be familiar with these objects. They're neutron stars, which are effectively acting as cosmic lighthouses. So they have very strong magnetic fields. Those magnetic fields uh, trap electrons, which give rise to synchrotron radiation. And that can be detected at uh, low radio frequencies. And so what we see are these pulsars, which are spinning very quickly. And some of those pulsars um, are well enough behaved in terms of uh, their spin rate or their their, uh, rotation rate, that we can use them to test for the existence of these nanohertz gravitational waves. And so effectively what we're doing is we're timing these pulsars in different areas of the sky.
0: 1,000 millisecond that, pulsars, which I think are also- Millisecond
2: pulsars. So the ones that uh, are roughly pulsars. periods about you know, on the order of a millisecond. Um, and we look at these in different areas of the sky- Oh, and we'll I read see, that
0: differently. 1,000 millisecond pulsars, not 1,000 exactly. millisecond Okay, not microsecond the, pulsars. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> okay. That'd be and cool, so, but yeah.
2: <laughs> and so if we find these, the gravitational waves should add a signature to the to the timing residuals so that the mm-hmm. timing rate at which um, we see those pulses coming from these pulsars, it will change as gravitational waves pass through. And so um, this yeah. is something that many uh, of the current facilities are looking for. But it's only by finding more of these and timing them for longer, as we will do with the SK, specifically SK-1 mid uh, in South Africa, uh, they will be able to find direct evidence for this nanohertz gravitational wave background
1: okay so you're looking for so i'm just going to badly summarize this but basically it sounds like what you're looking for then are you know as gravitational waves pass by they're going to stretch and compress the radio waves you're going to get frequency modulations basically right in in the uh is you're going to get you're get
2: glitches in the in the timing signal so that the yeah. timing um the very well-behaved millisecond pulsars will have a, a very uh, regular uh, a time of the pulse. And so when these right. millis- when these gravitational waves go by, you'll see changes in that, very small changes that you can only measure after timing these for a few years and timing the very well-behaved ones.
1: Now, would you be able to, uh, I mean, would these gravitational waves, would they need to, they would be emanating from the source that you're monitoring? Or are we thinking about gravitational waves from another source interfering, or not interfering, but, you know, affecting uh, the timing of a source that you are looking at?
2: So, very good question in this case what we're actually looking for is this stochastic gravitational wave background so this will be due to many supermassive black holes that are merging in different parts of the universe
0: okay all right let me show you so i want to look i want to show this uh, focus group uh graphic and then i want to get dan i got dan some questions here i want to talk about and then we're going to i'm going to look at your comments and questions on the live chat folks so thanks for for being with for being with us on this um okay so here's all the things <laughs> Here are all the things that you're gonna be doing. Uh cosmology, cradle of life, epic of ionization, reionization, um the extragalactic what the heck is an extragalactic continuum? Hmm. Oh, I, yeah, what is that?
2: So effectively what we're what we're talking about there, when we talk about extragalactic continuum, we're talking about uh broadband radiation. So effectively, um your radio uh lights, your your radio continuum lights Uh, from these objects, and this can come from uh, star-forming galaxies, it can come from active galactic nuclei, so black holes at the centers of distant galaxies. It can even come from clusters of galaxies, so sometimes you see radio lights coming from uh, effectively the, 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 the medium between galaxies within big clusters.
0: And you're even going to be doing some solar and ionospheric physics with this. So absolutely. Uh there's a lot going on. It's definitely worthwhile building. I can see why you do what's it? and VLBI. Is that very long baseline interferometry? That's the last Excellent. one there. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And that that is important because that is what lets things like the Event Horizon telescope work the way it does, right? The Event Horizon. Absolutely. The <laughs> Event Horizon Telescope, for those of you who don't know, is um a uh an effort that involves alma among a great many other telescopes around the planet that uses the it's going to use the disk of the earth as its primary mirror and and it's trying to image directly image not just infer but directly image the event horizon of the of Sagittarius A star so that's the that's the supermassive black hole at the center of our galaxy and it's using very long baseline interferometry and it's really i don't fully understand how it works but it's great and it's complicated and it's a way to take a whole bunch of little telescopes and turn them into a great big one uh is where i guess we'll leave it for now but dan dan welcome. yes uh, let you are so i can see how it works right i can see that jeff is sitting around coming all this great science and him and his little colleagues and cohorts and they're just going to look at you and say okay now go build it so, right, exactly. so you that's, gotta that's you how, gotta make this happen. So, tell us a little bit about the engineering challenges, and it's been, and especially with what you're working on, which is the low frequency stuff.
3: All right. Um, so, I mean, to just put up some some numbers, for example, in interferometry, you correlate pairs of antennas between both telescopes. You'll have. Uh, over 100,000 baselines or pairs of antenna that you're correlating. Uh, you'll have 65,000 frequency channels. And so, for both telescopes, we're talking something like it's over billions of data streams that are going to be coming out of this telescope that need to be processed, that need to be calibrated. And a lot of this processing and calibration needs to be done in real time. Challenge in doing that uh the kinds of data rates that we're looking at are you know the, the data going to the central processing facility in each for each telescope um we're talking on the order of 10 terabits per second so it's uh it's huge data rates the supercomputers that are going to be processing this data on the back end <coughs> of the telescopes are going to be you know some of the most powerful supercomputers in the world uh there are Sorry, just interrupt me, Tony I just uh, wanted to
0: all I wanted to do was ask you, would it be a good a, a chance for me to now put that video up about the data journey while you're talking about uh, yeah, sure, okay, so I'll have that playing while you describe the uh the data flow and what you're talking about, the supercomputers and all of that, so go ahead, it's playing, okay, so we're so we're starting out all right, with, um, Oh, are you trying to get it up so right so so
3: sort of um end to end uh you've got uh radio light that hits an antenna or a dish and that induces a voltage in in the receiver Uh, and that's an analog signal so i'm just gonna keep track on the video um that analog signal uh is extremely faint uh it needs to get amplified it needs to get conditioned and it needs to get digitized and that happens or a lot of that happens at the central signal processing facility which is a ways away from the antennas and the dishes uh, in the central signal processing facilities you've got digitization channelization conditioning of the signal um and then this data can be treated in a number of different ways it can be correlated to form images, or it could be stacked on top of each other to form um more sensitive Beams, uh, and those beams can be used to detect things in the time domain, which is, uh, pulsars. So anyway, so just going back, um, a lot of the processing is then done in central signal in, the, in a central processing facility, which is relatively close to the antennas and the dishes. But um, a lot of further processing needs to be done at a supercomputer, and the supercomputers are going to be located in Perth and in Cape Town, so a couple hundred kilometers away from the what we call the central processing facilities. And, um, and and there is a lot of calibration post-processing done, but I'm just looking at the video, and, and it, what it shows quite nicely is I think both the time domain processing and correlating the baselines, um, which give you, a, let's say a hundred thousand different baselines that need to be correlated, and then you have multiple thousands of channels of each of those. Uh, and there, so there, there you go. It sort of sees you, uh, it's showing you the science data processor mm mm-hmm. uh, well, so the science data processor uh which again a massive amount of data it can't go from the science data processor straight to the scientists the data is too much and, and too fast so there's going to be another stage which is going to be read uh, in the vision is that they're going to be regional regional data science centers in different places around the world and they are going to receive sort of pack um the data products from these uh, science data pro- um science data processes and from there that will be the intermediary from which the scientists will pick up the data and we're talking um like sk is going to deliver hundreds of um of terabytes uh sorry hundreds of petabytes so it's, yeah it's 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 a, it's a huge amount of data
0: right so yeah that was an amazing wow. that was an amazing video so that shows the yeah. data flow and how they're going through now one of the one of the things that's sort of unique to radio astronomy uh, is that all of these channels, and we saw that in those little fibers coming out of each individual dish, uh, those have to be processed, you said real time and then and then they need to be further like signal enhanced by putting channels together and, and lining them up and, and because they come out in a different kind of phase delay, right? In other words, some signals come out at different times then right. another and so you've got to put all of that together right into a coherent signal that's right okay and um, what sorry, a bit more, sorry go ahead oh, i just wanted to say what what so what are the um is that is does i'm an, i'm i've worked in optical astronomy all my career and one of the things that i try to teach people is that signal to noise if you take a whole lot of small images at shorter uh exposure times and then co-add them add them up you end up with a like say you know say you took a hundred ten second exposures uh you would end up with something you know you would end up with something that had the equivalent of a thousand seconds after you've added them all together but the noise right. has only gone up as the square root of uh 100. so right. the noise doesn't rise as much as the signal does when you add them up that's something i i try to t- you know keep going back over with each. Hang out when we talk about this in radio right. astronomy. Is there an, is that what is that the same thing or does it is How is signal to noise improved uh, when you've got these very faint signals, or do you just deal with what you got? That's
2: a good question. So it, in, oh, sorry, Daniel, I didn't mean to interrupt you. <laughs>
0: um, no, I think
3: I think Jeff's best place to answer this question. Okay, so, go ahead, Jeff. I'll, yes, I'll, that's it. Uh... It
2: is a matter of it, the longer you observe for, the longer you integrate for. That noise goes down as one over the square root of time, so you can uh decrease the noise by either increasing the bandwidth, so you've got a square square root of one over time uh times bandwidth in there, but of course, you know more dishes also brings down the the that noise the more collecting area the less noise you'll have
0: so okay I me mean, so uh, in, in radio astronomy, if you look at something for a hundred seconds, the signal goes up. As if you're looking at it for a hundred seconds, but the noise goes up as the square root of a hundred seconds.
2: So the signal doesn't, the signal doesn't go up, but the noise is going down. The noise is going down in this case.
0: Oh, so the signal stays the same. It's like when you yep. tune into a radio station. Oh, oh, no. oh okay. okay. Oh, cool. yeah, so yeah. it's like you're staying, okay. you're tuning into a radio station. It is what it is. And then, but the longer you stare at it, you, the noise goes down. How come? The noise
2: is going down. So it's just, it's, um, it's uh, counting statistics. So it's it's basically the Poisson uh, nature of the noise, the Gaussian nature of the noise means that, um, you know, you're counting, you're uh, effectively, your signal, if you're to look at the sky, uh, you've got a contribution from the cosmic microwave background, you've got a contribution uh, from you know, your antenna, your receiver, and you've got a contribution from the source you're looking at. And so what you want to do is you want to, Get rid of those sort of random components by observing that source in that region of the sky for as long as you can uh, with as big a telescope as you can
0: so is uh that why you i mean was square kilometer ray was square kilometer uh decided on because of the science required to do it is that because in in space telescopes that's how it's done you look at what science you want to do and then you look at what telescope would meet those requirements is that how the square kilometer Array was decided on
2: absolutely so in fact in the early 90s uh, radio astronomers got together and they effectively asked the question if you were to look for atomic 21 centimeter hydrogen emission from a galaxy say like our milky Way galaxy at a large distance and and i think the benchmark they use is roughly Redshift 1. Um, and so if Redshift 1, if you were to put a galaxy like the Milky Way, or what we call an M star galaxy, at that distance, how much collecting area would it take to detect that galaxy in, in, in each one 21 centimeter emission? So this 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 um, this hydrogen emission uh, is already faint. And then as you put these galaxies further away, uh, it gets fainter. But then the hydrogen, 21 centimeter emission goes to lower frequencies, the redshift effect. effect. And so as you go to lower frequencies, um, your sky is your sky is also getting brighter. So that adds a contribution to your noise. So there are a lot of effects that come into play, come into play here. But what it boils down to is that you really need more collecting area to be able to study this hydrogen line at very distant redshifts.
0: Okay. how big is uh, how big is Alma?
2: Uh, it's a very good question. I, I'm afraid I don't know off
0: the top Sorry, I didn't mean to get you there. I, I, that's a, but but is, it, uh, uh, is this will be bigger than ALMA.
2: This will be more, collect, a more collecting area than ALMA, but it will lo- work at lower frequencies. And
0: lower frequencies, okay. So yeah, yeah. Uh, ALMA will still contribute then to the science that's being done here with... Uh, these
2: are very complementary facilities. So for example, let me just take one science case. So we have the desire to understand how planets form. And so with ALMA, you've seen these beautiful images of rings... Around uh, protoplanetary discs mm-hmm. And basically what they're showing you is the distribution of millimeter-sized pebbles, and you see gaps in these discs, which might be due to planets in the process of formation. Um, we want to obtain similarly high angular resolution, so 10 to 40 milliarcsecond second angular resolution of systems like this, at centimeter wavelengths in order to see the distribution of centimeter-sized pebbles. So the wavelength that you're observing uh, is very close to, or traces very well the size of the dust grains or the pebbles around these protoplanetary systems and so
0: now you know well, tell to, us what okay, I, most people would probably get that you're talking about the precursor of a solar system but give us a right. quick idea what a what a proto- protoplanetary disk is
2: yeah so the the, uh, the belief is that these um so planets like are form forming discs around around stars and so you'll see as those planets are in the process of formation that you'll see the debris left over uh well the, the um, sorry the 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 dust and the pebbles from which these planets are forming in these disks. And so in the early stages of planet formation, most of the, the pebbles will be in very small grains. And so as the planet or as the, the grains coagulate together and form bigger centimeter size and eventually meter sized rocks, uh we want to study those different formation um basically formation phases by studying these systems at different wavelengths
0: right and so uh and so yeah i wanted to make sure people knew what those were and those these dust grains these these are like this this debris is little tiny dust grains each glowing essentially at various radio wavelengths that if you had a high enough uh, resolution telescope because even in radio objective equals resolution it's it's directly proportional and so you want the big as big a telescope as you can get to to make that happen so um, okay, I want to show. I got this meerkat. Uh, well, actually, rent- uh, Tony. Yeah, I may briefly interrupt here. Um, I just wanted to
1: just relay a relay a question, yeah, cool. uh, that I saw in the chat, and I think it's applicable to this idea of you know adding more and more uh, detectors. What's that? Um, if we add additional uh antennae, was that an upgrade path for uh, SCa over time?
2: Uh, it could it could be an upgrade path. Right now, for the first phase of the s k uh, we set ourselves a cost cap um, at 675 million euros mm-hmm. and within that cost cap uh, we know we can deploy a certain number of antennas um, right. in later phases um, of the project uh, we would hope to add more collecting area more antennas
1: okay so there are sort of the, that that is the plan eventually but okay. obviously you have to prove the the system first and
3: then the baselines, the, dis- the distance goes up, uh, their vision is that it will go up a lot. So the maximum baseline for the mid-SK1 the mid, uh, mid, the mid-frequency telescope in South Africa is 150 kilometers. Uh, adding, s- s- adding more dishes to it in the future, the vision is to go up to several thousands of kilometer baselines. What do
0: you mean by baseline?
3: So the distance between the maximum distance between
1: any two dishes or any two antennas, and, and that sets your effective aperture, right? That, I mean, that
3: sets your 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 res, yeah, your resolution.
1: Right. Yeah. Which which in turn gives you your resolution. Exactly.
2: Right. Okay. Yeah. So the uh, to take the single dish case, the largest single dish uh, radio telescope that currently exists is five hundred meters across. This is the the FAST telescope in western China, and I had the the fortune to see this for the first time two or three months ago, and it's really an incredible. Uh, it's really an incredible uh, facility. It's really an incredible instrument. It's, it's sitting in a valley, and the dish itself is so big that you don't move the dish itself. You actually move the secondary reflector from these cables hanging on either side of the dish. Um,
0: That's like Arecibo, isn't it?
2: It's exactly yeah. like Arecibo, only bigger. Yeah. Hmm. I think
0: I saw, the, I saw the press release that came out on that. That was a pretty impressive telescope. Um okay, well, somebody mentioned cost you said uh, six hundred and seventy five million euros correct who's who's so who's the is there one country any group of people in, uh paying for this is it the consortium how are who's paying for all this
2: so the twelve countries um i didn't list all of them at the very beginning, but the twelve member countries will all contribute a fraction of the funding to build uh the s k obviously there will be return uh to those countries in terms of the the observing time. Uh, that the astronomers in those countries will be awarded, uh, based or, or reflecting uh, the amount of a contribution that those countries have made uh, to the project.
0: Oh, is um, I, go ahead. Oh no, go ahead, Tony. No, I just want. So is that going to affect? So you, that is going to affect telescope time.
2: The amount, of, uh, the contribution will affect uh, the amount of telescope time the observers or the astronomers in that country will receive.
1: Okay. All right. And that's pretty common yeah. for for multi. know organization contributions right you mean you know it's it's a function of money how much money you're putting into it it depends on the it depends on the facility but that is
2: um becoming more and more the case
1: yeah for sure um we have a question in our chat uh from SB, uh and the question is why are the why are there arrays in australia and in south africa is there an advantage to having them in two distant locations as opposed to all of them in one location does it perhaps improve resolution so i think we kind of know the answer but why don't you Go ahead and just describe. No, that's
2: that's a great question. So um, part of the reason to put these radio telescopes in these remote locations is that we want to get away from human-made interference, radio frequency interference. And that radio frequency interference is stronger at certain frequencies uh, than others. And it turns out for low-frequency radio astronomy, the Western Australia site uh, is potentially a little bit better you still have to deal with things like uh, uh, airplane uh, radio frequency interference or satellite radio frequency interference. But for the most part, because of the very low population density, uh, the, the, the interference uh, from humans is very low. And so it was a good place to put, uh, to construct uh, SK-1 low. Uh, in the case of the crew, it's at a slightly higher elevation site, uh, maybe a little bit drier. So that would make it a better site for observing at uh, higher frequencies.
0: So SK one low. Uh, what's SK two?
2: So SK. Oh, sorry, Daniel. You go ahead.
3: So SK uh, one low is uh, what is currently what will what will be funded. Uh, that is part of the six hundred and seventy five construction budget, uh, and that the twelve member countries are going to participate in. in are going to contribute towards SK phase two is after that's built, it's a vision to add more antennas uh, and more dishes in both sites. But that has not yet, is not yet a funding plan and a commitment uh, on, uh, to, to do that. So so at the moment, the project is SKA phase one, and um, we're currently at the end of the, pre- of the pre-construction. The de- we're in the detailed design phase, or nearing the end of the detailed design phase of SKA one. And so what Jeff said it, it, towards the 2020, uh, 26, 27, it will near the end of
1: construction of SKA
0: phase one.
1: Okay. And
0: okay. Uh, Christian, you want to read uh, Hans Milley's question? Do you see it there? Yeah, I,
1: I was going to say, I think this dovetails pretty nicely yeah. into Hans's question. Uh, so uh, the question is, uh, how are projects uh, for the telescopes chosen? Uh, so are there scientists uh, going to be sending in uh, proposals, and will there be a time allocation committee? Uh, like we do this on Hubble and other observatories. Is it going to work the same for Scott? Absolutely, yes. Um, One uh, maybe small difference is
2: that we intend to allocate a large fraction of the observing time on both telescopes, maybe 50 to 70 percent to large uh, key science projects. Mm -hmm. Um, And so one of the the advantages of these telescopes we're building which have high or fast mapping speeds is you can map out many uh, hundreds if not thousands of square degrees uh, on the sky. And in order to do that does require a thousand hours or more of observing time. And so we expect, again, to allocate a large fraction of the observing time uh, to these big uh, survey type projects. And so there will be you know, 30% available for smaller PI led projects. Uh, but the expectation is that most of the uh, time will be spent doing surveys. But that uh, time allocation will be decided by a time allocation committee.
0: Great. Okay, I wanna show, I wanna talk about Meerkat and I've got the picture up of it now that that you sent me uh is this different what well first of all what is meerkat what does it stand for what does it stand for yeah. I don't it's a, it's, a, it's the name of an of a tiny animal I know that time. but I, doesn't it mean something <laughs> <laughs> <Does> it, <laughs> I know it's that it's, I know what a now meerkat you, know, how you know I just <laughs> um no but but, but meerkat, what does it stand for in this context here right um meerkat is uh it's a South
3: African-led and funded uh, telescope that consists of sixty-four dishes that will form part of the core of SKA One-Mid. Okay. It's, uh, it's 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 own it's its own project. It will have its own science program, and then it will be absorbed into SKA One-Mid. Uh, and and become part of the 197 dishes that will be sk1 mid okay and uh, SK-1 but it's important
0: mid with i'm sorry that was 350 okay. to, 350 megahertz to 15 gigahertz is that right
2: yeah uh, for sk1 mid that's correct yes okay and
3: did you
0: want to Jeff?
2: you to wanted to add something sorry. i was just going to say the meerkat has just begun uh science operations full full science operations in the last uh year or so what's well, up and going and it's up and going and this is very exciting because we're already seeing some science results uh, coming from this facility our south african colleagues have done a great job uh in uh, getting Meerkat up and operational its it, our scientists uh, from different parts of the world involved in some of the observing projects um and i think uh, maybe you're going to show it next we have one of the first uh images that have come has come from the meerkat showing it now uh, array and this is an image of the galactic center uh, at uh, in radio continuum emission.
0: Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, so, uh, and this is in radio wavelengths, too, which is amazing. Correct. So, yeah. so,
2: so this is what we'd call radio continuum emission. Um, this is generally tracing synchrotron emission uh, in the galactic center region. And you see things like supernova remnants so that, the, you know, the end products the death of stars. You also see evidence for magnetic fields um, uh, coming, you know, associated with the galaxy. Uh, So it's really a spectacular image and and the fidelity of this image and the resolution of this image is much better than what had previously uh, been possible with telescopes like the Very Large Array. And so uh, it's not shown here but we have a comparison image uh, that was made with a very large array. Um, You also need to combine uh, these images with a single-dish telescope uh, to get what we call the larger scale structure. Uh, so the interferometer will will filter out scales larger than a certain uh, size, uh, which you then need to re uh, or um, reconstruct uh, by observing these uh, these systems systems like this uh, with a single dish
3: telescope. That's wow, that's I could I could I add? So um, yeah, yeah, it's it's really exciting how great this image is and and that it's the best. Uh, image that we that we now have of the center of the galaxy and this is with 64 dishes so another 130 added 100 added to that um it's it's exciting yep that's remarkable
1: um just a a a question that uh we we've kind of had in the chat here and i think this is a good segue to it you know i know that exoplanets is a hot topic in astronomy right now so would this would this uh, array be capable of detecting say you know synchrotron radiation coming coming off of a magnetic field of a giant planet is that possible uh, or
2: excellent question yeah in fact this is one of the science cases uh for sk1 low so you can imagine uh, an object like jupiter only a hot jupiter uh, where you have a very strong uh, interaction of the um, basically the magnetic field of jupiter or that's um, hot exoplanet Uh, with the with this with the stellar wind and so that can give rise to bursts of low frequency emission decametric emission That you Mm -hmm. might be able to see but you could possibly detect in nearby uh, exoplanets with uh, SK-1 low.
1: Wow
0: right. Uh, Do you see any other questions there?
1: uh, uh, Yeah (laughs) Oh, okay Uh, question uh about the uh, about the uh, uh, array that we showed earlier uh, why were they hexagonal shape instead of round that's an interesting question uh, daniel uh, i think you were, we were, i think that image came up while you were speaking uh, you were telling us about uh, i believe that was the is that the meerkat array that you're showing or yeah i uh, got
0: it back up again yeah it's the meerkat so. array like they do seem to be kind of hexagonal shaped and not round Yeah. does that matter anybody
1: know why
3: I, I don't know why actually
1: <laughs> Yeah, that's an interesting shape. I mean it's an off axis Gregorian design, but uh yeah. but yeah, they aren't quite they're not quite round. They're almost hexagonal. That's odd. Yeah. Oh cost saving measure, who knows. Okay
0: Galaxia's asking <laughs> about these I got the image back up of the Galactic Center. Galaxia wants to know what these stripes are. I do too. Oh yeah. yeah. So
2: these? this is, again, synchrotron radiation, but associated with um, uh, magnetic fields in the galaxy. So these have been known about, uh, actually, for some time. However, uh, they've obviously never been seen with such high angular resolution. And you know, at this resolution, it just looks spectacular.
0: So those are uh, those are following, that's plasma following field lines? In so the galaxy. following...
2: Uh, it's a so the synchrotron radiation associated with the electrons spiraling around these magnetic fields
0: and that's mm-hmm. from the galaxy not any any local phenomenon. these are galactic field lines they're following galactic wow that's wow. really cool that look like filaments and the I mean, supernova remnants are those those little blobby things that one of them was on the left is that a, correct the supernova correct. remnant okay correct that's oh, busy in um
1: there. and actually uh I, this raises now I've got another question because yeah the big blobbies are are supernova remnants. Uh what about the more compact sources could would they be uh neutron stars or black or stellar black holes? Uh many of these could also be smaller
2: uh supernova remnants. Okay. Okay. Wow. So
0: yeah. Uh, the ever helpful discord, if you guys aren't on discord, by the way, get over there on there and start asking questions on there. Cause it's really, it's a really good resource and I'm on it all the time, but Peter Q went and looked up the Alma stuff and, and, uh, we, had, cause I asked how big it was. He goes, it's fi-, And he posted the Wikipedia thing on there that it's 50 antennas of 12 meters in diameter and elevation of 5,000 feet. And so it's got, uh, it's got, uh, Uh, You can do all kinds of different uh, configurations of it, uh, but it is 20 times better than the very large array. It's supposed to be five times better than the Hubble Space Telescope. Now, whenever they say stuff like that, it's better than this and that. They don't say how, but first of all, the Hubble Space Telescope looks at the infrared through ultraviolet uh, and the the VLA and the ALMA, these guys aren't even close to looking at that. So better, I don't know, but definitely different wavelength. Um, And it's terms, I guess maybe they mean aperture. I'm not sure. but uh anyway that's uh i mean all it certainly my... outperforms hubble uh, in the radio part of the spectrum <laughs> right yeah. yeah because uh hubble can't see any of it <laughs> unless he's listening unless it's listening to the uh uh, what is it called, Tetris? <laughs> <You know>, the... <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um, you, there are no real issues, are there, with the atmosphere and radio astronomy? It's is. Are there any, for example, in in infrared astronomy, there are many wavelengths you cannot look at from the ground because of water yeah. vapor absorption. Does Do radio telescopes suffer from any of that, or is the is the atmosphere pretty transparent to all the radio wavelengths you're looking at?
2: Unfortunately, unfortunately once you get to higher frequencies, uh, around 22 gigahertz is the water vapor line. So it, it does impede us. Uh, these I mean, that
0: pesky water vapor well. gets in everywhere. Yeah.
2: Well, actually, when you get to 70 gigahertz, the big one is the oxygen line, and thankfully that's there.
0: Thankfully, yes, we need that one. Thankfully, it's there. So is that why then, I mean, these, these radio telescopes all seem to be built in dry locations. Is that why uh, to avoid this water vapor line at, at what did you say it was? At, so,
2: so in fact, in the case of S, the 2SK telescopes, the main uh, driver for the locations uh, has been cho- it's been chosen effectively to get away from radio frequency interference. Uh, So to get
0: away from uh, human-made Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, okay, please continue. I wanted to ask you about that. So you've got to be away from civilization to do this. Correct.
2: And so, for example, um, you'll choose sites that are radio-protected quiet zones so where we can't put in uh, radio stations or, or, you know, digital TV signals. Um, Obviously, you'll always pick up some signal, um, especially from, you know, Aircraft flying overheads, uh, satellites, uh, there's nothing you can do about. But when you get away from the, the majority of the noise uh, that we have to deal with, uh, you really can see a big difference in your ability to observe the sky. And so I think radio frequency interference is our, uh, effectively, you know, is, is worse for us uh, than the water vapor is for ALMA at the higher, at the higher frequencies. Can I- are 10.
3: Could I add something just to give a sense of how sparse it is? I think in, Mer- in the Murchison uh, Shire area, the population is about a hundred and the, uh, the area is about as big as Bavaria, I think. So it's, it's really very sparsely populated, but, um, I also wanted to mention that at low frequencies, the water vapor is not, 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 not a problem, but, uh, the ionosphere is a big problem at low frequencies. Oh. And, um, so the ionosphere is, um, charged particles in the upper atmosphere. And uh, they cause path length uh, distortion, path length changes uh, to the waves and, and other problems. And because the time variability can be really, uh, really high for the ionosphere and the, and the scales over which the changes can be quite, can be quite small, um, it's a, a big challenge for SK lows to calibrate the ionosphere, uh, ionospheric uh,
0: distortions. Yeah. So I guess, uh, so there's no cell phone service out there?
3: <laughs> I, I wouldn't yeah uh, no
0: <laughs> well
1: i <laughs> mean just, uh, just to get rid yeah, of, I of it i was gonna say uh i i, I take it there's a there's a quiet order uh around uh around the array no use of cell phones or anything yeah. like that
2: we expect that will be the case that's certainly the case uh certainly the case now um now during construction there will be an increased level of of electrical activity going on on site and so <laughs> these are things you can't do anything about however there will be uh, Periods set aside uh, when construction activities cannot take place, and people obviously can't use cell phones. Um, and these will be the times that we use for for scientific observing during that construction period. <laughs>
0: How embarrassing would that be? You're talking on your cell phone, and everybody in the whole uh, observatory is listening to it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, when, when you're done, when you're quite done, we'll continue. Uh, okay, so Deep Physics Star, I'm going to ask this question exactly like you wrote it. So just, yes, just so you. there, is this radio telescope? <laughs> Uh, will it be capable to detect free-floating planets like SIMP S I M P J O one three six five six six three plus zero nine three three four seven three, or even with a weak magnetic field? Shall I read that again? <laughs> <laughs> will it, plate, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> will this be will it be capable of detecting free-floating planets?
1: So we're so, we're. Oh, go ahead. Oh no! I was going to say so. Yeah. So so it's it's a free floating planet as opposed to a planet associated with a star. Okay. Uh. Now I see what's. Yes. Being asked. As opposed
0: to yeah, the planets. Associated I guess with stars. the
2: trick would be knowing where to look in this case. So if the magnetic field no, I'm afraid I'm afraid the answer to that is no. I I think for the most part we are going to have to rely uh, in the future on our optical uh, colleagues finding these finding these exoplanets and then uh, for us to be able to go out and follow the follow follow up. Uh, observe them at uh, radio wavelengths.
0: Okay. Uh, <clears throat> let's see. I'm going to put this uh, image back up while we ask, while I ask uh, Galaxia's question. Uh, and is the black hole behind or in the bright white light? So where I'm looking at this image again. I've got it back up. So we've got this big now. bright thing in the center of the image. Is uh, star behind it? Hello? Hello? No.
2: It's in there. it is in there somewhere
0: yeah not at this wavelength though um i don't i don't know what wavelength range the event horizon telescope is using are they using low so, frequency or higher higher frequency
2: they're using millimeter wavelengths of course yeah yep. yes okay so in fact yeah the, the so they'll see through wavelength.
0: this which is why they're using that wavelength so.
2: so the event horizon telescope is using submillimeter millimeter wavelength telescopes around the world um ALMA is one of the, phased, phased ALMA is one of the, 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 the baselines. Uh, you've got telescopes in Hawaii, like the, the JCMT, James Clerk Maxwell Telescope. Um, Owens Valley, I believe is one of the telescopes and the Large Millimeter Telescope in Mexico is another telescope uh, in, that, uh, in that event horizon telescope. But all of these telescopes work uh, predominantly at millimeter and submillimeter
0: wavelengths. Right, so yeah, I should have known that. Uh, let me ask Constance's question. Uh, can you take several images over time in the galactic center to detect movement? I remember Tony showed a video of the stars movement in the center of the galaxy. So if we had maybe taken some more of these over weeks or months, could we see mo- motion along these field lines?
2: Uh, that's an excellent question. I, I don't know the answer to that. Um, we wouldn't see the same kind of movements you see at optical wavelengths, where you see stars uh, in orbit around uh, the galactic uh, center black hole. Uh, but I, I, yeah, I don't know if you'd actually see um, any of the radio features changing.
0: But I'll tell you where because, you, would, you would see it. So in
2: supernova remnants. You might uh, measure their expansion. Right. And you'd also uh, see it
0: when you look at the sun. Uh, you're going to see a lot of activity there. So there's a lot absolutely. of lot of uh, electron motions going on uh, in when you look at solar activity. So... That's another good use of this I mean, that's just exciting okay um christian is there any anything more that i'm missing or should you have any well uh, the, boy all
1: of a sudden we're, all of a sudden we're getting all these great questions just toward the very end of the hangout but um uh here here's one that i'd like to just ask i wish i think it was galaxia who asked it but i could be wrong um i i remember the question was if this were to look somehow look back at our own solar system i guess this is more like a seti application you know what would what would uh Scott, detect if it were to look, say, from afar, look at our solar system? That's an excellent question. I think oh, Matt, Matt End asked this question. What would Scott theoretically see when it looks at our solar system from a distance? Okay.
2: So, depending on the distance, you, you would see the sun as a radio source. Mm-hmm. Uh, depending on the distance, you would likely resolve Jupiter as another radio source. And if you were to, to observe our solar system with a fine enough time resolution, uh, you would also be hearing uh, enough sensitivity depending on your distance, you would have uh, the ability to detect, detect uh, radio signals from Earth, which would be very exciting.
1: So yeah. Earth would not be a dominant radio source as much as we're broadcasting.
2: I think it would be my, I mean, again, it depends on the distance, but I think it would be drowned out by the sun. Um,
0: would a higher, uh, a higher diameter uh, uh, telescope maybe be able to differentiate that signal out of the noise? I mean the sun's not noise, but you know what i mean yeah that's,
2: that's a good question. I'm not sure, yeah, I'm not sure I could answer it but uh um yeah again it would depend on the distance
0: right, and that's because galaxia uh we it took it's we, we've only been broadcasting for a few decades, and so that's the light radius that we would have to uh you'd have to be within that to. Really detect anything that came from Earth, and and of course the uh earlier broadcasts were probably nowhere near as strong as they as they are today. So it would be this sort of ramping up <laughs> of, of us getting louder as it goes. um Good. Okay. So you're saying that this thing is getting where, where you've you finished the Square Kilometer Array has finished this design testing. Is that what? So this...
2: well, go ahead, Daniel.
3: So we're. To, nearing the end of the what we're calling the, the detailed design phase detailed we're having a, phase. <laughs> yeah we're having a number of critical design reviews for the different parts or subsystems of the telescope uh we're going to have a system critical design review next year and uh construction we expect should start uh, 2020 and be so, completed in 2026 2027
0: yeah okay well Thank you. This is great. This was uh, we're we're, um, we're almost out of time here, so I want to I want to thank our guests. This was our first hangout. Well done, Christian. This looked great. Oh, well, thank really you, Tony.
1: Time. Thanks for having me along, and thank you, gentlemen, for for joining us today. We really appreciate your time. Yeah, oh, it's our pleasure,
2: guys. Great to meet you, and uh, it's been a, it's been a good time. Thank you. Yeah, it my, was fun. Uh,
0: thank so uh, my guests today were Dr. Jeff uh, Wag. He's a he's one of four project scientists for the Square Kilometer Ray. and Daniel Hayden is the uh, engineering uh, systems engineer for the Low Frequency Telescope. And I wanna thank you both for for attending. And I wanna remind everybody that next Tuesday, we're gonna be doing Telescope Talk only on the amateur version. And I've got uh, Dustin from uh, Oceanside Photo and Telescope is going to talk to us about the remote controlled observatories. If you followed Fraser on Twitch, then you know that he's been showing a lot of stuff on a remote controlled telescope. It's been operating. Live uh and we're gonna be talking about that telescope with the people that are uh building them around the country. I'm trying to talk them into building one here in Florida and and um next this Thursday, Harley Thrunson and I will be back with Future in Space, where we will be talking about the links. Space telescope. That's LYNX. That's a high-energy X-ray telescope that's being considered. It's one of four uh, pro- space telescopes being considered as part of the uh, na- the Decadal Survey uh, that is going to be announced, I think, late next year in 2019. And so we're going to get a status report on what they're doing, and we'll learn about this, the uh, the uh, science and the capabilities of the Lynx space telescope. So that's this Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern time. On behalf of my co-host Christian Christian Reddy from Launchpad Astronomy, see I got it this time, I want to thank you all <laughs> so much for watching and as always, keep looking up.